Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, America, and all listeners around the globe. This is Billy Jones, the author of Everyday Folks Books and the creator of Everyday Folks Radio. You are tuning in live at this time on Sunday, March 3rd, 2019. And I'm so excited about today because it's been some time since I've had this conversation with you about, well, DJ Speaks and everything in between. So welcome to the series return. This is very exciting for me because it has literally been a year since I've had a conversation with all of my listeners. And I apologize profusely for that. And there are reasons for that, but we'll get to that later in the show. The fact is we are here, we're together now, and we're going to have an exciting segment. If at any time you'd like to speak with me during this live broadcast, you may call me at 347-539-5372. Again, the number is 347-539-5372. And you may communicate with me as well via email at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Again, that is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Before we get started, I'd like to say a special thanks to the South Florida Writers Association, I've been a proud member now for three years, and yesterday, our, our monthly meeting was an extraordinary one. Every month, folks, if you're here in Miami, you should come out and participate in our group. We meet the first Saturday of each month, and we meet from 10.30 till 12.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at the Pinecrest Regional Library. And there were so many conversations, there were over 50 members present, and it's just beautiful to be in a community of writers and creative independent thinkers who are willing to push their craft and their trade to the next level. So hats off to the group and special recognition to Beverly, who is the president of our organization this year, and all the executive team for its incredible work. So today's conversation is about writing reading and writing about sentimental places. How much do you know about the hometown or community in which you live or maybe perhaps have grown up in? If the walls could talk in your home or rental property, what would they say about the lives that once frequented those places? And even more so, as a creative artist, how could you incorporate, if not refashion, that experience, that setting, that location within your own writing? Today's conversation is about looking at the possibilities of looking in, of understanding the value in writing about sentimental places, and as well as hopefully offering a few tips 
a few tips of the trade that will help you and encourage you to reach your fullest potential while exploring this particular topic. And so I'll start with this. My interest in this topic began about three years ago when I had this epiphany that I wanted to finally write a poetry book. And this poetry book is about the historic sites and other lights of South Florida. And I wanted to pay a tribute to each of these incredible locations of my hometown, Miami, Florida, but not just Miami, but all of South Florida, regionally, everything from south of Orlando, to visit these locations, get a sense of setting and history of these locations, and then memorialize that experience, whether it be to the point of view of the people who once inhabited the space or just my own creative interests, memorialize those interests within a respective poem. And so it's been about three years now and that venture has really turned into this incredible interest, not only in my own local, but also the idea that writing about sentimental places is very significant. And it starts with our understanding of how history was formed. And much of history that we read today, it all, all started with the idea of collecting artifacts, artifacts in the form of pictures, video footage for those of our more contemporary times, and even more so, just general relics of the era in which you want to study, whether it be clothing, weaponry, any recordings or records that are available, whether they are hard copy or digitized getting a sense of what those things were like and feeling them and getting access and reviewing them are so important, but even more so reading about uh, the history of the location is it's just as equal. And so while doing so, I stumbled upon the Stranahan House in Las Olas, Fort Lauderdale, which is the downtown area, and it's a beautiful location if you haven't visited. And while there, I learned a lot about the Stranahan family and their incredible journey to really rebuild a community that did not exist in Florida at the time, especially in a very evolving time of the early 20th century. And so after visiting there, and I, and I wasn't alone, by the way, when I visited, I talked about this visit about three years ago during the paranormal hour of October 2016. And so even though the scope then was about the spooky aspects of it, because yes, the place is allegedly haunted, that isn't what, ne what necessarily drew me there. I was just fascinated with the story because if it weren't for the Stranahan family and the deal that they made with Mary Brickle, who owned the beaches out, the Fort Lauderdale beaches at the time, she wanted the Stranahan family not to be near her. And she made a deal with them to get away from her by she offering John Stranahan a dollar an acre, close to 12 acres of land, which is where Las Olas is, so that he can move away and start his trading post at the time and, uh, as he built the area. And so as a result, I, I, I was so fascinated with this because I realized the Stranahan family, they, were, they moved their entire lives across the nation in order to come here in the very south, mosquito-infested, hurricane-infested, uh, <laughs> Um, environment, and as well as with the movement of Henry Flagler and everyone who was moving toward and understanding the idea of trade and transportation, well, they wanted to be part of that. But when they arrived, they recognized that their work was more than just starting this trading post. It really helped 
spawn the existence of an incredible community that now I work in as a Kirkbrower College. So that entire story I learned by visiting and visiting the tour, gaining a sense of the house itself, because the Stranding House still does exist, and walking along with my students in the area, smelling the air, absorbing much as I could of the period, because the house is still in period. So this is very unique because the house itself served as a laboratory. But at some point, we were given an opportunity during that, come, that visit to break out into respective areas and explore the house in its full capacity. And I told my students, I challenged them at the time, I said, you know what? I want you to go in any aspect of the house and whatever moves you or compels you to create, do it. So my photography students took photos, poets wrote poetry, novel and short story writers wrote little excerpts of writing and they tried as best they could to recapture the essence of the moment and it wasn't necessarily about the house, but the mood, the setting, all of those things could, can actually move or eventually build towards something else that they could incorporate in their own stories. So one of the first tips that I offer in this conversation, in this topic is, well, you got to go to location. You have to, if you can, visit, go. And if not, there are obvious, uh, many opportunities where you can explore the, to the topic or location via virtual as well. But if you have interest in your own areas, I always say this, before you go explore and travel, which I think is an amazing thing to do, I love traveling, I encourage you to see what's in your own backyard in your respective community. No matter how long you've been there or lived there, there is an incredible story of the places that you live, that you shop, and even more so that you may have been born in. And so visiting and being fully immersed in that culture makes all the difference. And when you're there, it actually brings us to setting number two, and this is especially for writers, or tip number two, rather. That is, try to use the sensory details that are all around you. Take in all those five human senses and see in which you can, how, in what ways you can incorporate into your, that into your writing. So whether it be the smell of the location. I remember being very... In, in the Stranahan house and being very moved by the, the sight and smell of Florida pine, which is no longer used now in houses here in, in Florida. But it, for any historic home or a home that was built previous to the mid 20th century, you will find if, if it's still available in some, Florida pine, which is very precious. So to be able to have that sense of, of, of idea of how that's constructed is important especially if I want to construct that within the craft of a story, do a disjustice to a story, for instance, like the poem, the writing, if I didn't necessarily write the value and take in the full account of what was constructed of the location. And so the other piece to that is not forgetting that, yes, touch and smell, and, uh, or excuse me, touch and sight are very, are probably the most popular sensory details that we incorporate in writing. But we'd be remiss if we didn't incorporate the others, such as smell and taste. Smell and taste actually do go hand in hand. And so if one sense is impaired, it usually impairs the other. So yes, you can't lick the actual sort of pine, but you could metaphorically taste it. And so that taste is a haunting, if not a beautiful reminder of the lives and the hands that once built the location. Another idea to keep in mind is the following. 
take it slow to build your storyline, to build your set, to build your setting. It's important to do so because if you rush this process or rush the, rush the experience, then your readers don't get a good sense of what that means and how that it embodies within their understanding of the context that you're building for them in their respective reading. And so it's easier to do so naturally when you're writing a novel and you're building a sense of setting. You may have several settings in which things take place, but there's still one ultimate dominant setting that takes the story's focus, which could be a city, it could be an apartment, it could be a work location, it could be another galaxy or dimension or a universe that doesn't exist. But even still, you have to take time to build trust with your reader to make even if it's fanatical, credible. And so I know that within my own stories, even if you're writing a poem, for instance, I, I see this right now, as I'm writing these poems, I recognize that many of my readers may have heard of, let's say, the Stranahan house, but have never visited. And so therefore, in the poems that I'm writing about the house, number one, I'm not writing just one poem. I'm actually writing a series of poems from the perspectives of the husband and wife who live there, some of the visitors. I even, during my tour, met a woman who was in another tour group who commented that she visited this actual location when she was a a teenager because the house itself into the latter part of the 20th century was turned into a restaurant while Mrs. Stranahan was still living there. So she turned it into a restaurant in order to make a living for herself. And she rented out the bedroom floors as bed, bed and breakfast uh, areas. And she herself lived in the attic of her, of her house. Talk about a very unique circumstance, but she was an aging woman and she did what she had to do after the passing of her husband. And so I saw that. I saw the stairs. I was able to get a sense of what it meant not only to live in the attic, which in this time was quite dreary, by the way, but also to have a sense of duty and purpose because she recognized that even though she was educated and she was one of the first school teachers in Broward, she also recognized that the times were changing. The area that she lived in was becoming further developed, and she slowly started selling off the land in order to live. So all of that history is important. And if I'm going to write the story or perhaps a biography or historic fiction about the Stranahan family, I need to know all of those little innuendos of their lives, from the beautiful memories they had as a couple to the tragedy in which Stranahan himself, the husband, he tied a, a grate around his, his neck, um, his waist, and he jumped into the, the river there, which is right outside their home, and many tourists can ride down on showboats. He committed suicide. So I want to see what life was like before and after those things, and even more so, what would drive someone to do such a thing. But if I'm writing it from the point of view of, of, of Mrs. Stranahan, what was life after for her? What was life like after for her? And how, could, how can I, as a, as a writer, be as objective as I can in understanding that? Well, that brings us to number four, which is research. Research, research, research. Not only the visiting in terms of observation, but also researching whatever I can find online, visiting the Historical Society of Fort Lauderdale to see what they have to offer. And if there are any siblings, in fact, I, I, I should share any relatives. The, the Stranahan's never had children, but there is a storyline, and I, I did come across very recently a distant relative of Mrs. Stranahan 
And I emailed her. I took a chance on social media. I, it was a strange story that I won't even get into, but it was such a moment of serendipity that led for to me getting an additional artifact of information, including drawings and photos that further my research on the actual setting. And so I'm speaking here very openly about the idea that, well, if you're going to write about these sentimental places, they're sentimental to the Stranahan. They're not sentimental to me in terms of personal value because of the fact that I did not live there. But it is sentimental to me because it is part of my own hometown. And their experience did memorialize of what people may perceive or deem as life in South Florida in the early 20th century. So for those of you who are listening or tuning in right now, you're listening to me, Billy Jones, the creator of Everyday Folks Radio and author of Everyday Folks Books. And I'm talking about writing about sentimental places. I, I bought a new home about three years ago. Not a new home. It was built in 1950. But I bought a home, a new home to live in, about three years ago. And I discovered after my own research that this house itself has only had three owners. And that includes me and my better half. And so after doing further digging, we discover that this house has an incredible story. And even though it's been around well almost 60 years, I'm now a member of this house and I now add to the story of the home. And only in time, 100 years from now, when I'm no longer here, another family or another community will have thrived, hopefully, in the home. And it too would have a sense of understanding of well, the story, but also adding to it. And so all of these things matter when you're writing about fundamental topics. One alternative advice that I offer when you're doing this is to make sure if you're going to write about these fundamental places, especially places that are endearing to you, you need to be in a place in your lives where you're ready to tackle or address this in your writing. Case for example, a case or an example I'd like to offer is this. One of my colleagues, who's a writer as well, came up to me and was sharing with me this, this interest to write about her hometown, but her father had just passed away recently in that hometown. She had not lived there for over 20 years, but now that her father is gone, and her father played an integral life or role in this, the evolution of the town, she feels now at this state of her own life to, and compelled to write his story. So as posthumously she's writing his story from his point of view, I also know that she's in a grieving state because as she was telling me this, she had a couple of moments where she had to stop and because she's still in the healing process of a loss of a parent. And so I say to you, if you're going to write about the sentimental places, please be in a place where you yourself mentally, emotionally, psychologically are ready to move on and, and talk about it so that way you're trying you're paying homage to the topic or focus without the subjectivity, even though that's hard to say as writers, we're quite subjective in everything we do. But if you want to provide a truth and credential the location in its actuality, you have to be in the right place and in, in mindset and in, in physical, uh, emotional setting in order to make that possible. So all of these things that matter, these things matter in terms of experience. Yes, your experience does matter and who you are as an individual counts, but it also counts that you have to be in a place where you're able to address it 
and not be so compelled and moved, uh, not to make the story what it is. I'm not saying that you can't be emotional in the process because I think some of my darkest, if not unforgettable writing has come out of my moments of, of great challenge. But I'm also saying here is that you, you know you and you know when it's best to approach or at least tackle that option. So at this time, I'm, I'm seeing there are a number of you who are emailing me or calling in on my line with various questions for the show. And so what I'm going to do is take a couple of those questions. I'm getting one in particular from Clarissa, who's from, who's from Michigan. And she asked the following question. That quest, the first question is this. I want to write about my parents' hometown and the crime slash mystery behind it, but I don't know if I'm legitimate enough to write about it. What should I do? Well, Clarissa, I thank you for listening. And the advice I offer you is as follows. One, it kind of relates to what I just said previously. If you are in a place yourself where you are very connected to this crime or perhaps the crime that occurred related to your family or still has some implications on the family, no matter how close or remote, it may be best to second or re, I shouldn't say second guess, but re-evaluate your interest in that focus. Secondly, you have an advantage, Clarissa, because you live there or at least you're familiar with the location. So artifact digging is a very good start because even if you bring up the topic in basic conversation with folks who may dwell in the community, and hopefully you can still visit, I'm not sure if you're living there or not, but if you're able to bring up the conversation and put out a few vibes to see what people may think about the topic, that might be very, very helpful for determining whether or not this is the right time or season for writing about it. I always say as writers, we take many risks. And I don't see any problem with taking the risk if you feel it's well worth it. I do also get the sense from your question that perhaps you are viewing this through a very distant set of lenses, and that's a good thing. So therefore, I say proceed with caution, go with your heart and your instincts, but start doing some research and exploring using some of the existing current community and as well as any other things you may come across in order to drive your writing focus a little more. And I wish you the best. And if I can help in any way, you know how to reach me through my email or through my website, where we can further this conversation. Our next question comes from Dina from Tampa, Florida. Thank you very much for listening, Dina. And her question is, how much detail is required when you're giving a sense of setting the story? And even more so, how much is too much? Great question, Dina, and I'll answer with the following. Great, especially if you're writing a novel and a short story. Poetry is different because so few words will say so much. However, I think that this particular opportunity, if you're looking at it from a novel or short story writing, I think details are phenomenal, but you have to provide the right details. For instance, if I'm looking at or writing about a Victorian home, much similar to, let's say, the Stranding Hand House, which has been the backdrop history slash setting, sentimental setting I've been using for this podcast, I definitely want to make sure that I use the right verbiage in the right moment in order to make my reader be enthralled with my storyline. So if I'm writing from the genre of suspense, when people are very scared, 
at some point, especially when, when it's time for action, they're not speaking in long dialogue. Their dialogue may be more so very brief. But if I want people to get a good sense of the loneliness or emptiness of a space, perhaps, then I may need to use very choice words and verbiage in order to convey that understanding of loneliness without saying the actual word lonely. Here's an example. As I entered the home, the long, dark halls spoke of nothing. The walls were a faint, ivory-colored white. And the drapery, very dirty, very dingy, yet a reminder of lies that once drew them. Closed or open for each day. And as I moseyed about the actual parlor of the house, I realized that this incredible space that once threw parties, that once had amazing holiday feasts and the like, now was in the hands of a historical society that only wanted to preserve what was left of an incredible space. So as I'm, I just created that, by the way, Dina, on the spot. But if you notice in my setting, I wanted you to get a sense of the tone, my, my attitude toward the piece. I wanted to convey the tone in a meaningful way so that you as the reader can understand even though you may never have stepped foot in that home, you get a sense of the set, that the setting, the tone, the emotions that that space could speak. And that itself could lead to further understanding and development of characterization behind your characters. So thank you. And again, we can follow this conversation up offline if you're interested. And see that there are a number of questions that are coming in. And I do want to say thank you to those who are, are listening live. If you'd like to speak to me during the show, you're always welcome to call me at 347-539-5372. Again, that number is 347-539-5372. And if you're a little shy, it's okay. I, will welcome, I welcome you inside my inbox at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. And that is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. I see that I have five more questions, and I have less than 20 minutes for this segment. So I'm going to do my best to fit everyone in. This next question comes in from Anike, my dear colleague and friend, who hosts our, uh, her show. Now it's entering its third, if not fourth season, actually. Its third anniversary is coming up in May, which is Journey into Passion with Anike S. So she said, welcome back, and I am glad you are back. As a fellow writer, I appreciate this show and look forward to reading your book of poetry. Congratulations in advance on your bestseller. Sincerely, Anike. Thank you, Anike, for your love and support. And I ditto that right back at you, friend. I know that you're working on your own work as well. And definitely, we're going to be on each other's shows as the, the months come by to support one another and to promote our work. But folks, if you haven't done so, if you missed the recent show that she had back on, on the 23rd, go into our archive on Everyday Folks Radio. Or if you have iTunes, you can go right into iTunes, into the iTunes podcast store, and listen for free for any of our 140-plus episodes that we have aired on Everyday Folks Radio over the past nearly four years. So thanks, Anike, for all your love and support, and keep up the incredible work that you're doing. Our next question comes in from Carlos, who's right here in my hometown of Miami, Florida. And he writes, 
Welcome back, BJ. I love nature. I'm an artist and enjoy drawing in nature. But lately, I've started enjoying writing poetry. Any tips? Well, one, Carlos, thank you for listening. The most obvious tip that I can offer you is to keep writing and drawing. First, Carlos, I'm going to say I am very jealous because you have a gift that I wish I had, which was the gift for art, the, the gift of illustration, that you can draw and recreate realities, if not create your own using the art of illustration, which I think is one of the most beautiful art forms in painting as well. But also the fact that now that you're trying to, that you're dabbling in poetry, I always say to writers or any artist, we don't just have one art artistic interest. We usually have inclinations in more than one art form. So therefore it is okay to dabble. But here's my, here's a few tips that I recommend. One is to take a look and read some of the, some of the contemporary, if not canonical poets who are out there. And there are so many to choose from. So I don't want to offer one in specific, but I will say that if you're interested in nature, you may want to look at some individuals, uh, let's say Wadsworth, William Wadsworth's work, who wrote beautifully about life um, in, a, in, 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 in Europe and under, in his appreciation of nature. Our very own in America's Emily Dickinson. One of my favorite poems is, I like to see it lap the mouth. I like to see it lap the mouth. And she writes an incredible poem that some will say, well, what the heck is the it she's referring to? But she never names it. She never provides an antecedent to the word it. But one can infer after reading that poem that whether it be a whore, it could perhaps have been a train that passed her home. The fact is that she wrote it in such a beautiful way, how she would marvel this it was whenever it would ride by her home. And it was a reminder, a, a, a relic of her, of her, her moment in life. So each of these things are important, but I think you need to read and, and get a sense of who else is out there, especially if you're trying to write to a particular genre of poetry, because yes, poetry does have a genre. So you may want to take a look at several artists who are out there and see what they're doing. And I also say be open to the possibilities, because just because someone's doing something that you may be wanting to do, you may find interest, let's say, in Dante's work. If you look at Dante's Inferno, and the way in which he writes that in incredible epic poem with his entire book, I think you would probably find some value in looking at that, or perhaps understanding the joys of limerick or the rhyme scheme of Dr. Seuss. So it's a matter of fitting in and, and, and getting a sense of those who walked before you in the past just so that you can be a more informed style and the types of work that you like to produce. I wish you all the best and I hope we'll stay in touch. My next question comes from Angie from Sanford, Florida. Thanks for listening, Angie. And her question is, have you heard of the Southern Gothic? Hmm. What is it? I live in the South and I enjoy writing. Should I use it in my, in my writing? So again, Angie, thank you for listening. So I'm going to take your three-part question, or actually four-part question. I'm going to break it down. So part one is, have you heard of the Southern Gothic? Yes, I have. In fact, one of my favorite writers, uh, a short story writer, her name was um, Flannery O'Connor. She wrote a short story titled, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And basically this story is about this family, mom, dad, baby, and, and, and sister, or brother and baby sister, and grandma. And grandma, she accidentally, or she purposely packs the cat for a trip from Tennessee. They're supposed to be going from Tennessee to Florida, 
can't recall where. But on their trip, they encounter the misfits. And the story starts quite comically. The grandma's kind of racist. It, it, it infuses all the episodes and, and perceptions of select folks in this particular time. Flannery herself was an early 20th century author. She also died at near the age of 40 of cancer. And her story is Southern Gothic because it talks about dark regions of life living in the South. And there are quite a few authors besides Flannery O'Connor who provided that answer her story. The story ends quite interestingly because the title, A Good Man, is hard to find. Pretty much the family gets into an accident. They, 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 they get in an accident. The car gets, gets, all, gets turned over on the road. Everyone survives, but then who helps them while they're stranded? Because there are no cell phones, no beepers, no nothing of the technologies that we know or have known today. The misfit, who was an escaped convict and his accomplice, they happen upon the family, and pretty much they murdered the family. And the last person that they leave for the final victim is the grandma who pleads after being racial, a racist and an annoyance in the car. You can't but but have a sense of compelling humanity for her because she knows she's about to have and meet her end. And even as he murders her, she shoots her. She falls on the ground in very Christ-like fashion. Her arms are spread across just like, uh, like the cross. And as a result, as the story ends, it's hauntingly strange because why would Flannery O'Connor write this dark stuff when she herself was dealing with an incurable disease of cancer? It's all questionable, but it all made for, for a great story, a backstory. So the Southern Gothic is very real, even though it's not recognized or used heavily today because the South today is not the South we knew at least 50 years ago. But it is a reminiscence of using those elements of things, societal ills, and also the South was also a place that was more uninhabited than it is today. So we can't look at it through our modern lens because to live, let's say, in Miami is very luxurious and very sexualized in some ways, too, and attractive to some communities. But uh, Miami 50 years ago was quite very different, and so in a very racially divided Miami. And so I... Even though you live in the South and you enjoy writing, should you use this in your writing? I'd say try it. Definitely look at Flannery O'Connor. I think you'll find her work quite informative of not only the writing style, but the elements and purpose of this very regional yet universal literary device, Southern Gothic. Thank you for that question. I liked it. So our next question is from Mitzi from Orlando, Florida. And folks, I appreciate your love. I'm going to try to get to all of you, although I only have about 11 minutes left. So I'm going to wrap this up as fast as I can. Missy from Orlando, Florida, asked the following. And thanks for listening, Missy. What direction should writers take when the sentimental story that you're writing suddenly becomes your life? I had this happen to me once, and it was a bit creepy. Wow. Thank you, Missy, for that. So to answer your question, I would say that at some point, if you are so far in, it's just like doing regular research and writing in a sense is a form of research, although you're producing the actual empirical data. And so if you're so far along that you're in, there are two things you got to figure out. Number one, if it's, if whatever episodes pop up, these serendipitous, serendipitous moments, if they are not healthy, then you may need to take some time off. So you know when to take the pulse. 
But if you're getting to a point where your enjoyment is, be, is turning into fear, that's something to listen to. And you may want to retract or backtrack where you're going with your focus. And so I say to you to proceed with caution. But also, while you're doing this, at some point, if you do decide to take some time off, it doesn't mean that it's forever. You can very well come back and perhaps that time, now that you be in that new season, you'll be able to look back and reflect on where you've gone. I think the feelings that you were encountering at the time in which you experienced the creepiness could be great food, if not fuel, in your writing or narrative that you can produce in that time. So I say to you, if it gets to a point where it's too much, enough is enough, it's just like anything else in life. You may want to take a step back or a few in order to regroup or reconsider or, or focus on the topic. Good luck to you and keep me posted, okay? Our next question is from Oscar from New York. He said, if you could write about one particular place, BJ, where would it be and why? So Oscar, I, I, it's funny because I'm already, I'm already doing that now. I'm a native of South Florida and Miami in particular, and I love my hometown. Yes, there are times when I get annoyed with it, but I can't think of anywhere else where I can be who I am as far as identity and interest and love of nature. There are very few places that can offer what Miami offers me right now. And so if you've lived here all your life and were born here as well, you know how to navigate the system. So I'm already doing what you just asked through my poetry, although I think I want to take a step forward and perhaps write a biography or historic fiction regarding some interesting folks who are in the city. I haven't pinpointed one particular individual quite yet. I have a few that I'm thinking about, but I want to, I think I'll reevaluate that once I'm done writing the poetry book. I'll go back and see where I'm at to see how that works. And I most assuredly will keep everyone posted on my progress. The next question is from Doug from Nevada. I've always enjoyed visiting South America and have grown fond of places like Brazil and Argentina. But I'm a white boy, Amer a white boy American, and don't know if I'm equipped to write about such places. Any advice is welcome. So Doug, I say to you, it does not matter. Creativity is colorless, it is ageless, it is timeless. And so as a result, if you love a culture community, you have the right, you have the poetic license to produce however and whatever you want to do. Now, you do want to do your homework and pay homage to the location by keeping things true and credible because you will attract potentially a community that knows very well how life is in some of these incredible communities. But don't let the fact that you are disconnected culturally or, or through origin deter you from making it possible. So I say go forward. I mean, it's just like, for instance, that a colleague asked me, is it possible that someone who is not African-American teach a black history course or black or African-American literature course? And the answer is yes. There is just, I, I, then if that's the case, then look at what I'm, I, I look at what I teach and what I have learned in all my educational attainment in terms of English literature. Most of the folks who I study did not come from my own cultural heritage. And so therefore there is no color line, there is no cultural line, no gender line when it comes to exploring any topic. So I say to you, Doug, go for it and don't let societal skills pressure you from reaching your fullest potential. Thank you, Doug, and keep me posted on your progress. Our next question comes from Maggie from Los Angeles, California. How much of history is written objectively or is it all subjective? 
I say to that question very briefly, Maggie, I think that a lot of what is written, because history is written from a qualitative perspective, even though there are quantitative data to confirm things, but it depends on the origin and the, and the point of view in which, or the audience in which it's intended. And so therefore, there, one could say there's lots of subjectivity, but I want to offer, I'm willing to offer that subjectivity and objectivity both exist in the same platform. It all depends on the perspective. And the next question comes from Tanya from Louisiana. Tanya writes, how do you map out a sentimental location within the storyline? Good question, Tanya. Quickly, I'll say this. I'd map it out by saying and writing the following. One, I create a timeline and I make that timeline visible, whether it be on my whiteboard in my home office, on the screen of my computer, my desktop or laptop computer, I create a timeline in a sense of setting in terms of those aspects, because if someone were to dwell in the space, at some point, the timeline needs to include not only the space, but the characterization, dialogue, and actions, the denouement, and all those things that are related, conflict, and of course, the resolution. And so you probably want to map out your ideas. You can cluster it, or you can write it as an outline. Whatever works best for you, there are some cool tools that are available online that can make it possible but I would suggest out mapping it out in a diligent way so that way you're keeping to a sense of meaningful understanding of how this setting is significant to the storyline. And so these next two questions come from Julissa from ATL, Georgia, and Terrence from Colorado, which I appreciate these questions, actually. Thank you both. What is coming next for BJC? It's been a while. That's Julissa's question. And Terrence asks, when is your book coming out? So that is a great way to segue, folks, to my my announcements actually. So Jalisa, to answer your question, I'm going to be, I'm back. In fact, this Thursday at 10 a.m., I'll be interviewing the lovely Candace Hunter, who is a longtime dear colleague of mine and a doctoral candidate in some extraordinary research on gender diversity um, in the executive, senior executive level of companies in America. And so I'm going to have a great one-hour conversation with her about that topic. And that will be happening live at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, one hour, this Thursday, March 7th. But also, now and from now on, every other Saturday, Sunday, you will be hearing from me again routinely. So that way we're able to bring more of these exciting topics and shows to you, to, to you and to everyone around the globe. So, yes, we're back. No more hiatus. We're going to make it happen. And that actually brings us to question, our last question for today, which is Terrence from Colorado. When is your book coming out? So Terrence, the book will be out this summer by June, July 1st, 2019. However, it'll probably be really sooner than that. On August 17th at Books and Books in Pinecrest, which is a, a community here in Miami and in, in, in Florida, I will be at Books and Books with my release. I'll be doing a reading and a signing of my book, my new book, Everyday Folks Volume 2, that particular evening from 6 to 7.30 p.m. So you are encouraged to come out. I'm very excited. In fact, this is the first time I'm announcing it. Finally, it exists. It, shall, it has come to fruition. And so I appreciate the love, Terrence. And we are working right now. When I say we, I'm referring to the publisher. We're working on some pre-order options as well. You are encouraged to, to check out for that. I'll be posting more information on my website. So do go and subscribe so that way I can keep you apprised. But I'm so excited because something that has been long overdue. It's been 15 years since I put out the first book for everyday folks. 
and here I am 15 years later in the right place and right season to do it, there will be more opportunities like this as well. And there will be more books to come with the Everyday Folks brand. So thank you for your love and support, Terrence. And my last announcement is for uh, on March 23rd, I'm a member of South Florida Writers Association, and various members and I will be at the Capital One Cafe in Coral Gables from 1 to 3 p.m., participating in a panel discussion about careers in writing. I will be co-facilitating this session with my friend Brooke Chin Alfonso, who is the ambassador of the Capital One location. And so I'm very excited about this opportunity, and it's free. These events are free, folks, from my book release to the March 23rd Capital One event. Come on out and show your love and meet members of South Florida Writers Association. Definitely come up to me, introduce it, inform me that you're a listener of the show. Come and support Anike S., who may be in the house as well. We're all here to ensure that you're getting and receiving the feedback and love. Uh, just And all those things matter, by the way. They matter because they drive us to do what we do. And so now as we close this segment, I can't help but say thank you for listening. BJ Speaks is back, folks. I promise no more breaks and no more hiatus. I will, be, I will be definitely in touch until our next conversation, which is later this week. Take care of yourselves and each other. Have a fantastic day. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.